Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, I was challenged by the passage that I'm preaching this morning, this passage I've been wrestling with uh, for a couple weeks now in preparation for today. And I don't know what it is. Some passages, you know, as you read the Bible, some things just kind of strike you more than other things. Sometimes God doesn't work in you. Sometimes it stirs up memories. Sometimes there's conviction. Sometimes there's transformation. So there's always challenge, right? If we allow the Spirit to speak to us through his word, there's always something that God wants to shine his light on. This passage worked on me uh, in this way, in several different ways, as I was reading it over and over for the last couple weeks. And I'll tell you the one thing that comes back to my mind, it's a memory of when I was in high school, a fairly new Christian. I've been a Christian for less than a year. And you've heard my story before, probably so many times you could tell it better than I can. But uh, one of the things that was absolutely true of me when I came to faith in Jesus was that I couldn't shut up about Jesus. One of the things that was true about my early time as a Christian is that it was infectious and that God broke my heart for those all around me in my high school, I was a high school student, uh, who didn't know Jesus, and so I looked for opportunities to share the gospel. And this happened a lot. But here's one of the things that, that I remembered as I'm reading this passage of Scripture, and you'll see why it's relevant in just a few minutes. There was one particular week when I shared the gospel three different times over the course of maybe two to three days. And each time was a trade wreck. I shared the gospel and I got laughed at, ridiculed, uh, threatened by the person to be, that I was going to be beaten up by him for daring to say such things to him. Another one had what he thought was clever arguments, and since I didn't have the answers to those questions and objections and arguments, uh, I felt about this tall standing before him as he berated me with questions of evolution and science disproving the Bible and all these bad things that happen in life. How could God exist? And I didn't know how to answer. Not at that time. And then the third one, something similar to the first, an angry response. Somebody I was friendly with, but not close friends with. And after that, we had no relationship. So when day four or five, we're getting close to the end of the school week, right? It's Thursday or Friday. I don't remember. That was 25, 26 years ago. It was the end of the week. And I, fresh in my mind were these, these three negative experiences of sharing the gospel. And I see somebody who's been uh, who I knew from the, the school, uh, we, we worked on a school literary magazine together. He was an artist, and so periodically we would cross paths. And I saw him, his name is Vinod. He was a Hindu from a Hindu family. And the Lord was prompting me to go share the gospel with him. But I had just had three negative experiences. I was raw from them. And here's Vinod, nice enough guy, but he comes from a strict Hindu family. Is he really going to believe the gospel or is this going to be strike four in what is already a miserable week of sharing the gospel? I'm gun shy. I don't want to do it. 
And I even start to walk away. I wave to him, hey, Vinod, and I keep going. And then the Holy Spirit does what he does. He hasn't done this very often, but the closest thing I can give you in a metaphor is he turned me around and kicked me in the pants. I just knew I couldn't take another step without doing this. I had to share the gospel with him. And I went over to Vinod in a clunky, chaotic, not knowing what I'm going to say, still frazzled from the last three attempts and started to a conversation with him. Hey, Vinod, something happened to me this year, and I've been telling people about it because it's, it's the most important thing. Can I have a few minutes of your time, or do you have to run? No, I got a few minutes. Oh, I was hoping he said no, he didn't have time. And I shared the gospel with Vinod, and I was waiting for it. Dude, I'm Hindu. I don't believe in that Jesus. Something, something negative. And instead he said, Kevin, I thank you for saying that to me. I want to know more about Jesus. I've been reading through a Bible that somebody gave me, and I don't know what to make of it all. Do you go to a church? Yeah, I go to church. Can I come with you to church? Yeah, you can come with me to church. I got excited out of nowhere. Man, I just turned around, 180. God does amazing things. So Vinod came to church. Vinod heard the gospel. Vinod went forward on his very first time at church and gave his faith to Jesus. And God gave me the distinct privilege of being able to walk with Vinod over the next several months, discipling him, showing him how to read the Bible. I was still learning myself, but it was exciting to be able to do it together with him. And you know, I just looked Vinod up online on social media after many, many, many years of not no contact. And he is still to this day a faithful Christian. Praise God. But I'll tell you what was going through my mind in the weeks preceding that, I'm sorry, in the weeks subsequent to that, and as I read our passage for today, which is this. What if I had followed my impulse after three horrible trade wrecks of gospel presentation and did not share the gospel with Vinod. What if I never said more than hi and kept walking? Our passage of scripture today is from Acts chapter 17. I encourage you to turn with me there. Um, so if you have your Bibles with you, let's do that together. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. You'll see why this is relevant. Because as you read through Paul... You know, did you know that Paul didn't always have an easy time sharing the gospel? Did you know it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows as Paul went about his ministry? We're going to see examples of it again today. Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 1. It will also be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible handy. Here's what it says. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. I use that emphasis because if you remember in Philippi, there was not a Jewish synagogue, but here there was. Verse 2, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. 
So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to a Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews at Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Now, we've been seeing throughout our reading that Paul is now in the middle of his second missionary journey. Uh, he's visited the churches that were established in his first missionary journey, and now he's going in regions beyond new frontiers for the gospel to proclaim the gospel. God had directed him and his companions down to Macedonia, and he is now there. And one of the things we see over and over and over again as we examine Paul's ministry is that he had a method. He had a way in which he did ministry, and it always began with the Jewish people. The gospel was first taken to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And that's interesting because Paul received a mission from the Lord. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet we see, even so, he always started with the Jews and then moved on to the Gentiles. There's probably numerous reasons for this. I'll give you there's some practical ones and probably some spiritual ones. Here's just a few, perhaps, that I reflected on as I was looking over this passage. Perhaps you would have a few as well. But... Paul was a Jew. Well, that makes it easy, right? He himself was a Jewish person. He had the most in common with them. And so as he's trying to break new grounds, as he's trying to bring the gospel to new places, he's going to first go to those that are similar to him, that do have the same background, the same biblical understanding, and perhaps he'll have at least a core group that he's able to form from there of new believers. Also, the Jews knew the scriptures, the scriptures, the prophets, the Old Testament that was pointing forward to the Messiah. So as Paul is going and giving the good news that the Messiah has come, who better to go to first than those who should have been eagerly expecting him and knew the scriptures that prophesied his coming. Also, as God's covenant people, it was only fitting that the good news of God's fulfilled promises first be spread to those to whom the promises have been made. God made uh, Israel promises over and over again through history. We see them through the Old Testament. And so it's only fitting that that good news, that those promises have been fulfilled, be spoken first to those who were expecting them, to those who received the promises. However, not all Jews received the message in the same way. They didn't all view it as good news. They, didn't all, they weren't all receptive to Paul's message. 
And in our passage today, we have a tale of two cities, if you will, uh, two, and two very different responses to the gospel. So let's take a look at these two, some observations. Let's start with Thessalonica. Uh, Jesus did not easily, neatly, cleanly fit into the presuppositions, the pre-understanding of many Jews uh, regarding what the Messiah would be, what the Messiah would do. In fact, we see this as one of the issues here that Paul's dealing with in verses 2 and 3. Here's what it says. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And so this issue centered over the fact that Jesus died and rose again, something that many Jews were not expecting of the Messiah, even though it's clearly seen in the Old Testament. But there's a difference between what the Bible says and one's interpretation of the Bible. Let me ask you this. Have you ever driven down a road with a lot of churches and marveled at just how many denominations there are? Have you ever wondered why there's so many different views on so many different things? Now, mind you, all Christians agree on the essentials, the, uh, the essentials of the gospel. If they didn't, they're not Christians. That's what, from, from the time that Jesus came all the way through history, that core of beliefs, those essential beliefs, are what unite all believers everywhere. But isn't it interesting how even among our brothers and sisters, we can have disagreements over different things that the, Bibles have to, the Bible has to say. For instance, um, is the church going to be raptured before the tribulation at the end of time, or are we going to live through it? Does God predestine every person who's going to go to uh, heaven, or do we have free will to choose? Those are just two of the biggest topics that Christians tend to disagree over. So what do we make of this? Is this flawed? Is God's word like in trouble here if we can't even tell what the truth is? No. God's word is clear. God's word is perfect. However, we humans fumble about sometimes in our interpretations. And so sometimes the way in which we understand something is not the way it actually is, even if it's clearly revealed in Scripture. As so many times I've written something and somebody took it out of context and completely misunderstood what I wrote. There's times I've spoken and people had to ask a clarifying question because they got something completely different than what I intended. There's a difference between the truth and one's interpretation of the truth. And so sometimes there's some things that need to be cleared up. This often causes disagreement. And this is what's happening here with Paul in the synagogue as he's talking about Jesus. They have the same Old Testament, Paul and these Jews. They're reading the same scriptures. In fact, they probably had them memorized. But one's interpretation of what these prophecies mean and the other's interpretation of what these prophecies mean and how they'd play out could be two different interpretations. So as Paul is coming into Thessalonica, there are Jews who overlook some of those passages about the Messiah's death, and instead they're looking at these passages about the Messiah coming and reigning as king on David's throne, reigning in peace, defeating Israel's enemies, and they're like, why did the Messiah have to die? He was supposed to reign. This Jesus can't be the Messiah. 
And so Paul had the task of proving, demonstrating from the scriptures that the Messiah did in fact have to die and rise again from the dead. And so this is one of the things we see happening as Paul's in Thessalonica. And as we go through Acts, we see Paul dealt with this issue numerous times with the various Jewish groups he ministered to. And so we see this differing views on the Messiah, and yet they're all derived from the Bible in different ways. And now the events of Jesus' coming, his death, his resurrection, they've taken place, they've occurred, and Paul is demonstrating that they were in line with prophecy so that these Jews he's proclaiming the good news to would hear and respond to the gospel. A few more observations. Even amidst the hostility that Paul and others faced in Thessalonica as they're proclaiming the gospel, even amidst the hostility, people came to faith in Jesus. People came to faith in Jesus through Paul and company's ministry in Thessalonica. Both Jews and Gentiles, the text says. However, the unbelieving Jews violently opposed Paul and the spread of the gospel. In fact, Paul underscores the hostility uh, that is faced in Thessalonica even years later when he writes to the church at uh, Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians. Here, I just want to read you a small segment here. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. Again, the same church, a couple years later, Paul's addressing them in Thessalonica. Here's what he says. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which were in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. And so here Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica, reiterating what took place. The gospel was proclaimed in a hostile environment, and now these Christians, these young Christians, learning and growing and, and sharing the gospel and trying to live out the Christian faith are continually dealing with persecution from their own people, from the people around them, their neighbors, their community, their leaders, the cities they grew up in because of the gospel. By contrast, Paul's time in Berea started out much different. Here's some observations about Berea. The Jews of Berea recognized that if what Paul said was true, it was in fact really good news. Paul is speaking good news, and they recognize that if it's true, oh, it's the best news. We see this in in Acts 17, 11 through 12, it says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And so we see here that as opposed to the, the Thessalonican church, the Thessalonian church, there you go, uh, the Bereans understood. They were open-minded. They were expectant. They knew that God had made their people promises, and God is good on his word. So eventually those promises would be fulfilled. And if what Paul's saying is true, then God has done just that. And that's great news. They're still going to check the scriptures every day, comparing what Paul's saying with what the word of God has to say to make sure 
He's not leading them into a lie. But they're open-minded and excited about what God's going to do because they take God at his word. That is a completely different context than what Paul dealt with in Thessalonica. The Bereans were a much more noble character. In fact, the only pushback that Paul seemed to receive in Berea was from those antagonistic Thessalonians that came over from their city to make trouble for him there. I told you earlier about uh, my friend Vinod. I'm going to try to pronounce his whole name. Vinod Kumar Velahudan. And I'm sure if he was here, he'd be like, oh, you butchered my name. He said, call me Vinny or Vinod. I felt weird calling him Vinny, so I called him Vinod anyway. I probably even pronounced the shortened form of his name incorrectly. But we and him became good friends. We became brothers in Christ. And it was exciting to see what God did. But the truth still haunts me, even to this day, that I almost didn't share the gospel with Vinod because I had become so utterly discouraged from three hard times sharing the gospel. So let me ask this question. What if I hadn't shared the gospel with Vinod? I'll ask a follow-up question. What if because of the hardship that Paul faced in Thessalonica, Paul never went to Berea and proclaimed the gospel there? We, asked, we, we looked at this passage in Sunday school this morning, and I asked a very real question, and I think we were all challenged by it. How many of us, if we had been with Paul in Thessalonica, especially after what he endured in Philippi, would we have it in us to go on to Berea and keep doing this? After the hardships he faced, what if Paul never did it? What about all those people in Berea who put their faith and trust in Jesus because he did? So do our Thessalonicus keep us from our Bereas? Think about that for a minute. Think about that. Do our Thessalonicas keep us from our Bereas? So I don't think I needed any kind of tool, poll, article to, 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 to bring this point to bear, but I did my research anyway. And I found a poll that was taken by Campus Crusade for Christ, or Crew is their new name, and they're the ones that do the Jesus video, if you've remembered that from you know, several decades ago. And they did a poll of about 1,600, few went more than 1,600 people, Christians. And here's what they wanted to find out. What are the reasons you don't share the gospel? And a lot of different answers came back, as you can imagine, right? Some, they had a, des a desire not to offend anybody. Some, they claimed it was a lack of opportunity. Some felt ill-equipped, you know, oh, I just don't know enough, I wasn't trained enough, you know. Uh, th those kinds of things. Some said too busy. How many of us would give too busy? Is it? No, don't raise your hands. Um, but these are, the, these are the general excuses, the general reasons that came up. But it, they, none of these were the number one answer. What do you think the number one answer was? Fear. Fear was the number one reason given for why these 1,600 plus Christians didn't share the gospel. And if I had to guess... If I took a poll here, I would say fear would probably be the number one reason we don't share the gospel. If I took a poll of all the churches in the United States, I would think that the number one answer for why Christians don't share the gospel is fear. 
So, and another thing is, in this poll, fear wasn't just the number one answer. It was the number one by a wide margin. And again, I'm sure we can all imagine what we might be afraid of in sharing the gospel. Can you? If you had to put a name on it, what does that fear look like? What are you afraid of happening? And here's just some of the things. Uh, I'm sure we can all imagine that as we talk to people about the gospel, we're going to have to dialogue with people who don't share our worldview. They don't share our beliefs. And that just brings tension right at the beginning, doesn't it? You're engaging with people about a subject that you know you're entering in with not even just disagreements, but completely different understandings of how the world works. We know that in the course of sharing the gospel, we're going to have to assert in some way, shape, or form that their current beliefs are wrong. Maybe they got some of the truth. Maybe they understand some things rightly, but at the end of the day, if they affirm any kind of worldview other than what God has revealed to us in Christ, they're wrong about things, important things, and we know we're going to have to assert that to them in the course of our sharing the gospel. We also know that we will have to demonstrate that our beliefs are correct. It's not enough to just say, I believe this, and they say, I believe that, and they're just expected to believe. We even see Paul as he goes to these churches, reasoning with them, proving that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And we would be called to the same thing. You can't just say, oh, what you're believing is wrong. This is true. Well, how do you know that? And so we're going to have to engage in that. Maybe that's your source of fear. We also know that engaging in sharing the gospel can cause tension, conflict. It might even elicit hostility. It might even cause friendships to end, family members not to talk, and a lot of other things that we don't want to see happen. It's really no wonder that fear is the number one obstacle to sharing the gospel for Christians. And look, these things are exactly what Paul and company faced as they went to Thessalonica, right? He engaged in dialogue with people who held different beliefs. They've had different beliefs about what the Messiah would be, what he would do, what he would look like. And so when Jesus is, is being proclaimed by Paul, they are not on the same page with him. He had to assert that their understanding about the Messiah was wrong, right? He had to reason with them from the scriptures to demonstrate that what he's proclaiming is in fact true. And just as we fear, for Paul and company, this caused tension, conflict, hostility, and if you were with us last week, you know it brings imprisonment and beating and a whole lot of other things that Paul and his companions faced as he shared the gospel. And again, what we're reading about today, this wasn't Paul's first rodeo. This has happened in numerous uh, cities at many different times as he traveled proclaiming the gospel. So what did he do? What did Paul do? Innumerable Christians do not share the gospel because of fear of the very things that Paul faced all the time. So why did Paul persist in sharing the gospel despite these realities? And I'm going to let Paul tell you. I want to give you two passages of Scripture. These are, uh, one is from the book of Romans, so it's Paul's own letter to the church at Rome, and one is a little later on in our Acts study, but it's a, it's a quote of Paul speaking, and so I'm going to let Paul speak for himself. Why, with all the same realities, maybe even harsher realities than we face, to fear, why didn't he let fear stop him 
in sharing the gospel. Here's the first one. This is from Romans 1.16. It's up on the screen for you. Romans 1.16 says this. Paul's writing, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And so at the end of the day, Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not backing down from the gospel. I'm I'm not walking away from the gospel. I'm going to hold the gospel forefront and everything. Why? Because there's absolutely no other way in which people can be saved. It is the only means by which lost people become found by God. The only means by which people who are dead in their sins are brought to new life. It is the only hope. It is the only salvation. It is the only way. So who cares? If it brings bad consequences on me, I'm not ashamed of it. Because this is God's gift of grace and everybody needs it. If there were more than one way to be saved, if there were innumerable paths to God, I think Paul would have said, nope, not worth it. Not worth it. They'll find their way to God. There's so many ways. They don't have to follow my way. Why should I suffer? But he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone. And we read this in Acts 20, verses 22 through 24. Again, this is Paul. It says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going down to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Have you ever wanted God to tell you the future? Have you ever wanted to just know what's down the road? Give me the, you're not going to give me the 10-year plan, God. That's fine. Show me three years. Is this going to work out? Where am I going to be? What's going to happen with it? We want to know the future, right? I don't think I could handle the future if I knew what was happening. But here's what Paul says the Holy Spirit told him. Um, Every city you're going to go to, you're going to face hardship, uh, imprisonment. Uh, Man, that's the word from God you don't want. You know, God often speaks positive things to you, encouragement to you, peace to you in dark times. I don't like, I can't even imagine if God said, you're going to suffer. That's just not a good message from God. And what did Paul say? (laughs) That I'm not going to do it. No, that's not what he said. Paul said, fine. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens to me. My life is worth nothing to me. The only thing worth anything to me is finishing the race, finishing the task, being obedient and doing what God called me to do and getting it done before he takes me home. That is all Paul cared about. That's it. Because it's not about Paul. Because Paul will get to enjoy eternity forever and ever and ever, dot, 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 amen, in a world without any more hardships, any more persecution, no prison cells, 
No sin, no brokenness, no pain, no lashings, no shipwrecks, uh, no people abandoning him in the mission, and in the presence of God with joy and peace forever. That's his inheritance. He's got his eye on the prize. This means nothing except to complete the task God's given. This whole world, this reality, this life that we live before we either go home to be with Jesus or Jesus comes back, it's all about him and the mission he has set before us. Nothing else matters. Not one little thing. Yeah, but wait a second. I've got a family. Oh yeah, you do. That's your mission field. That's your ministry to raise up God-honoring children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren to love and serve the Lord this side of eternity. I got a job. Okay, I got to pay the bills. You're right. God has put you in that job as your mission field. Your co-workers, if they're not Christian, they're the mission. If they are Christians, well, guess what? That's the ministry. And there's not a single area of our life that falls out of God's purview. Nothing that's more important or even separated from that life he has called us to in him. And Paul understood this, and that's why he could do the things that he does. And we're amazed at it. And yet we're called to the same life. In Thessalonica, Paul faced opposition and hardship. If he'd been more concerned with that than the mission... If he'd been more concerned for himself than the mission that God had given him, he never would have went on to Berea where they received the gospel with what Luke says was great eagerness. I don't know about you, but I find that compelling. However, we ought not to overlook that God did a lot of things even in Thessalonica. Paul faced hardships. Jason and his family, the other believers, they all faced hardships at Thessalonica. It didn't even end after Paul left, right? But God did amazing things, even in that hostile environment. Here's what it says in verse 4 of our text. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. This is Thessalonica, not Berea. As did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So even despite the hostility they faced from the unbelieving Jewish people, there were many who came to faith in Jesus. The church in Thessalonica took root, it grew, it impacted others long after Paul had left. In fact, there's no letter to the Bereans of the New Testament, right? There's no like Second Bereans chapter 2, right? That's not in there, right? But there are two letters to the Thessalonians. And so we know that this church has persisted. And here's some of Paul's comments to this church, not the Berean church, the Thessalonican church, uh, despite the opposition and hardship that they faced. Here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. He says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God, uh, God before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. 
You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Whew. I would love somebody to come and say, I just had to be in Belgrade Alliance Church today. Do you know, I live in another state, and your faith is known everywhere among the believers. Man, that is, I mean, Paul doesn't just throw words around, right? He's very, he's very clever with his words. He can be sarcastic, which I love. I'm sorry. Uh, he can be very like, whoa, I have no idea what Paul is saying. He's so brilliant. He just, he's, he's above my, my level. But, man, he doesn't just throw words around. He doesn't just pepper people with compliments for the sake of giving them compliments. This is a strong testimony to what God did in this hostile environment to those that came to faith in Jesus. Paul's time in hardship in Thessalonica was not just a wasted time on his way to Berea. Even in the midst of hard road of proclaiming the gospel, God can do amazing things. Again, those three frustrating evangelistic attempts and Vinod. Thank God for Vinod. I needed to pick me up. I might never have evangelized again if not for Vinod. I needed, I needed a positive experience. God knew it. And he gave me my friend Vinod. Thank the Lord. If I had given up after the three frustrating attempts, Vinod would not have given his life to Christ. Or God would have had to find another means in which to lead him that way. However, the story doesn't stop there. And I'd love to tell you more about it, but you're already going to probably going to look at your clocks. A few years after graduating high school, I, uh, I learned that one of those three, you know, those three, right? One of those three frustrating attempts to share the gospel, one of those individuals actually gave their life to the Lord and became a youth pastor. And I just checked on social media, and now 20-something years later, he is still serving as a career youth pastor of a huge youth group at a big church and having an amazing, effective ministry. Now, that didn't come because I shared the gospel. Somebody else led him to faith in Jesus a couple years later. But don't try to tell me for one minute that God didn't use what I looked at as a frustrating and failed attempt as some step, one, some rung in his journey, some seed planted that moved him just a little further, that God was able to bring back to his memory, that in some way served to, to prepare him for the gospel. And I don't say that to my credit. I say that because a lot of times we see these moments and we think of them as failures and we don't want to do that anymore. And yet you have no idea the good things that God brought from it. And maybe we'll never know. But we have to trust God because we know who he is. And he's always at work in and through us, even when we don't see it happening. We will face some some of our fears as we share the gospel. I don't doubt that fear is one of those things that creep up in your life and keep you from sharing the gospel. I'll tell you right now, it's one of those things that creep up in my life. I'm a pastor. I, I'm almost done with a PhD in apologetics. That's giving a defense for the Christian faith. And even I experience fear at times in sharing the gospel. It's, maybe it's intrinsic to humanity. Who knows? 
but fear cannot stop us. We will face some of our fears as we share the gospel. We're going to dialogue with people who believe differently. We're going to have to show them that what they believe currently is wrong. We're going to have to demonstrate the truth of what we believe. And we may elicit anger, ridicule, loss of friendships, etc. in the course of fulfilling the Great Commission. It's all a reality. I'm not going to tell you you have nothing to fear. But that should never stop us from sharing the gospel. Because, as Paul demonstrates all too well, it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. It's not about our comfort or not wanting to experience fear. It's all about others receiving the salvation that's offered to Jesus alone. It's not about what we want to do, because I can guarantee you there are things we might enjoy more than doing that. But it's not about what we want to do. It's about obedience to what Jesus wants us to do. And the beautiful thing is, it is God who does the work. Not you, not me. We don't have to do the heavy lifting. We don't have to have a PhD in evangelism to do it. God does the work. There is no hostile situation that can stop God and his plan. Doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter when it is. Doesn't matter what's going on. There is no hostile environment strong enough to keep God from what God wants to do. And even when we can't see God work, praise God, he is still working, whether we see him working or not. In fact, Paul writes this doxology in his letter to the Ephesians, and I want to read it to you. It's two verses. It's Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Here's what he says. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Those are not just pretty words to be in a letter or pretty words a pastor speaks at the end of the service. Listen to what Paul is saying to the church. God is able to do immeasurably more than you could ask him for or even that you can imagine him doing things you would never ask for because you cannot possibly conceive of him doing it. But he could do immeasurably more than that. Not only that, he could do it according to his power that is at work within us. So God doesn't have to go solo on this. God can use even us to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine as we step out in faith to join him on mission. He does the work. He does it through us more than we could ask or imagine. So what is our part? I'll leave you with these reflections. What do we do? How do we do this? Here's what we should do care about the lost people all around us. Raise your hand if you know people who don't know Jesus. Okay. For those of you who did not raise your hand, I get it if you're tired, it's late, it's lunchtime. But if you really can't think of somebody, I would ask you to spend some time in prayerful reflection. Because I guarantee you, there's a very small percentage in our town who are actually Christian and a whole lot more that either don't know the Lord or who have heard of him. Maybe they grew up in the church. But their lives are way far from him. And we need to be thinking of them as the mission too. Care about the lost people all around us. Pray for those you know who don't know Jesus. I know you know their names. 
right? Several times over the course of this last year, I've asked you to think of people who are close to you but far from God and to be praying for them. If you've, stopped, if you've slacked off in that, do it now. There's your New Year's resolution. Pray for those who don't know Jesus. Look for opportunities to have spiritual conversations. If you're not ready to just jump in and say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you're separated from him unless you give your faith to him. If you don't want to do that, that's not your first conversation. You know, that's not your conversation starter. Fine. Find ways to bring up faith. Find ways to talk about your faith. Find ways to find out what they believe. Find ways to have spiritual conversations and then gently lead it the way it needs to go to share the gospel. Create moments to share what God has done in your life. What's your testimony? What has God done in saving your soul? And what has he done in all the time since then? Answering prayers, healing, working in your life, encouraging in dark times. Share these. Share what God has done in sacrificing his own son so that they could be reconciled to him. Invite them, perhaps, to join Alliance Women or Alliance Men or our Sunday school or our worship service. Invite them to lunch with another brother or sister in Christ. Can I tell you, if you are particularly one of those shy people, you can't even imagine having a, a conversation in which you're sharing the gospel, then please don't try to do it alone. Invite them out with somebody else who's a Christian, another brother or sister in Christ. It's much easier to talk about these things when there's somebody else there who also has had the life-changing experience of giving their life to Jesus. And then you're not alone right? Do these things. And I promise you, I guarantee it, God will show up and do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine if you just trust him.